Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Welcome to Good Heavens, a podcast about how the heavens declare the glory of God. Here are your hosts, Wayne Spencer and Daniel Ray. Recently, I finally took to blowing the ever-growing pile of huge leaves from the vaulting American sycamore tree just in front of my hobbit hole here in rural Texas. Each leaf of the American sycamore, I should note, is roughly the size of a man's hand. So, moving a pile of them, even with a leaf blower, is no small task. And as I tried blowing them in a westward direction, away from my front door... I soon encountered a rascally playful westerly zephyr who seemed to arrive just in time to frustrate my efforts. As soon as I'd blow a bit of leaves from the pile, the gusty invisible guest pushed a great many of them right back at me, as if to say in a kind of silent speech, What shall you and your little wind device do now, O child of earth? And in just that single gentle breath, the wind's question seemed to contain more wisdom than all the ancient philosophical tomes ever written. Nevertheless, I ignored it. So for a good hour, I was engaged in a game of one leaf forward, 22 leaves backward, with my little storm of plugged-in machine-made wind and the invisible omnipresent ancient Zephyr from the western edge of the world who seemed to know more about leaves, man, and his machines than an invisible breeze ought to know. My hand eventually got tired, and I had to allow many of the leaves to remain where the unseen power seemed to want them to remain. In rather simple terms, my leaf-blowing tentatio with Mr. Westwind encapsulates not a few themes found in the life, imagination, and writings of J.R.R. Tolkien author of the timeless mythical fairy tale Adventures of the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. On the next three episodes of Good Heavens, Wayne and I discuss a little bit of Tolkien's life, imagination, creativity, and stories. You might be wondering at this point what leaf-blowing and old tollers have to do with our podcast's theme of astronomy, cosmology, and the Christian faith. If so, great. You'll want to keep listening and find out. Though the idea of God is never explicitly mentioned in The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings, one gets the distinct impression of divine providence nonetheless, that something or someone greater than the elves, dwarfs, hobbits, or the race of men is guiding and orchestrating the affairs of Middle-earth toward a specific end, something akin to the Old Testament book of Esther. 
So as I was blowing leaves, Sisyphus-like, away from my front door, I actually had no thought of them other than to get rid of them. So when my meteorological guest from the hinterlands blew them back at me, perhaps he wanted me to think of the leaves as more than just a nuisance in the yard. And I think Tolkien was someone who did just that. He had an incredible fondness for trees. In a letter written in 1955, Tolkien says, quote, I am, obviously, much in love with plants and, above all, trees, and always have been, and I find maltreatment of them as hard to bear as some find ill-treatment of animals, end quote. I cannot help but think that John Ronald would have viewed me with a leaf blower, a disdain for fallen leaves at my front door, and muttering against the western wind with a mixture of disgust and pity. In a short story titled Leaf by Niggle, Tolkien sketches something of an autobiographical portrait of his lifelong work on Lord of the Rings. It is the story of an older man, an artist, who is more than a bit overtaken by his desire to paint a tree. The completion of the tree portrait, however, is hindered by Niggle's obsession with carefully crafting each leaf with painstaking detail. The obsession seems to put him at odds with real life. His cares and duties of practical living are neglected in pursuit of his enormous tree portrait. This story in and of itself provides some insight into Tolkien's awareness of his own sins and frailties, but also his love of words and languages. The leaves in Leaf by Niggle are symbolic of words, carefully selected and utilized by Tolkien in his mythologies of Middle-earth. He considered himself to be a lifelong philologist, a lover of words, and invented languages for his stories. Each word was a portal into an entire universe itself. His love of trees and of words also reveal Tolkien's love of nature and the careful eye he had in being a sub-creator. For Tolkien, being a sub-creator was to do what we as divine image-bearers are created to do, that is, create, though we do not do so out of nothing, as God does, but with the materials given to us by God himself as gifts. I like to think of Tolkien's stories as a literary version of Hudson River School paintings, an early 19th century art movement that was known for its attentive detail to light, to sky, and their interplay with mountain, valley, and forest landscapes. The difference being that in Tolkien's universe, light, sky, nature, trees, and stars are not just artistic replicas of the real world, but are all very much a significant part of the story. Tolkien's portrait of nature in Middle-earth, we might say, is a much more realistic view of nature than our modern ignorance of nature being just stuff for us to use, exploit, conquer, mold, and destroy for our own ends. Tolkien painted stunning visuals of nature with his careful selection of words. What may appear to some as an obsessed fastidiousness with detail turns out to be a unique and unprecedented attention to nature. The terrain of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings is, for Tolkien, that of a sub-creator who took painstaking care of his creation. Quote, he felt that every detail of his cosmos needed attention, 
end quote, his biographer Humphrey Carter suggests, from the cabbages and potatoes to fires, smokes, and lights, to memories of wind and trees and sun on the grass, Middle Earth contains the very marrow of a man who experienced the lucid sharpness of a two-edged terrestrial pilgrimage, the intense joys and great sorrows, the light and the darkness, to the core of his being. As Tolkien wrote to a friend, quote, It is written in my lifeblood, such as that, thick or thin, and I can do no other, end quote. The lifeblood of John Ronald Rule Tolkien is the fount from which his natural theology still flows to this day, covering his readers and their children in a virtually indescribable awe and wonder. In this regard, Tolkien serves to remind us of our Creator, who is himself the Logos, who created the universe and all its stunning elegiac beauty by speaking. The creator of the cosmos is also known as a man of sorrows. Tolkien's mythical prose, The Landscape of Middle-Earth, remind us that there is something of an elegy in every star, leaf, tree, forest, river, and vale. Nature is telling a story, declaring the glory of the one who created it all. But Tolkien was the first to tell his critics and admirers that his works are not Christian allegories. He wrote in 1955 that, quote, It is not about anything but itself. Certainly it has no allegorical intentions, general, particular, or topical, moral, religious, or political, end quote. Some had thus criticized Tolkien's work as having no religion. But Tolkien pointed out that his work, quote, is a monotheistic world of natural theology. The odd fact that there are no churches, temples, or religious rites and ceremonies is simply part of the historical climate depicted. Quote. Consider a letter Tolkien received regarding Lord of the Rings from a man quote, who classified himself as an unbeliever, or at best a man of belatedly and dimly dawning religious feeling. End quote. The man wrote to Tolkien. Quote, you create a world in which some sort of faith seems to be everywhere without a visible source, like light from an invisible lamp." End quote. In part one of our discussion about J.R.R. Tolkien, Wayne and I chat about Leaf by Niggle, Tolkien as a philologist, sub-creating, and the Logos. Of course, there is far more to Tolkien's life and work than Wayne and I could possibly do justice to or cover in three short episodes, but we hope that what we discuss here will ultimately encourage you and help you to see the wonders of creation afresh, to see your own story within the creation that God has made, and of course, God's love toward you in Christ Jesus our Lord, the maker of the heavens and earth. Well, good heavens, Wayne. It is a Merry Christmas. Good heavens. Well, Merry Christmas, Dan, and uh, we're, we're off again to the uh, podcasting. We are podcasting. <laughs> Casting seeds. That's what podcasting means. Casting your pods. Yes. And uh, sometimes uh, they, they get eaten by birds. Sometimes they fall into the cracks and they don't take root, but sometimes... They grow into a tree or something. 
I think that's something of a biblical parallel, <laughs> a biblical para- parable. So uh, we hope that the cast of this seed will encourage you, our listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Good Heavens. And uh, it's been a busy month for me, and it's just going to get busier. So I'm glad we can get this in. Going to New Orleans uh, at the beginning of 2023 for the conference in uh, for our Defend Apologetics conference we go to every year. So that's coming up. And uh, you uh, traveled to Kansas, and you're back, and didn't hit any animals on the highway like I That's did right. when I was on my trip. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, so this is last year. We talked about the Star of Bethlehem around the Christmas time, and that was fun. And uh, we can link that episode in the, the description notes. But tonight, it is night when we're recording this. We are going to talk about something related to the universe. But not directly. Uh, something we've been talking about, talking about for a long time. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien, author of *The Lord of the Rings*. Right? Yes, and um, I am a really major fan of Tolkien's stories. Yes, and uh, both Dan, you and I have both read quite a bit about Tolkien, and mm-hmm. uh, so I. I've been really looking forward to doing this for some time. Yes, yes. Um, And I think you'll see, at least uh, I hope you'll see, our relation to uh, Tolkien and the cosmos as we talk about this tonight. So um, I have had my little background with Tolkien. I've uh, taken some formal master's degree level classes with uh, Dr. Michael Ward and Dr. Holly Ordway. Who have both uh, Dr. Ward is a Lewis scholar. Holly Ordway has written a book called um, Tolkien's Modern Reading. And let me think. Of, let me make sure that I've got that right. Hold on. Yeah, she she sent me the, a copy of her book. It's um, a great book. I need to dive into it more than I have. Um, Tolkien's Modern Reading: Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages. So I went through that for our podcast a little bit. Um, but I've read Tolkien for graduate school and uh, learned a lot about him and uh, C.S. Lewis. And uh, But I am not a Tolkien expert to the extent that uh, Holly and Michael might be and um, just sort of a layman's interest in it, but also a little bit more formal interest in it. So uh, hopefully everything I say will be in accordance with, uh, if you are a devout Tolkien fan, pardon me ahead of time for <laughs> making some errors. <laughs> but uh, if you don't know Tolkien, um, but you, you know who he is and you kind of know Lord of the Rings and stuff, this will be a fun podcast for, for wherever you are on the Tolkien scale. We'll be, we'll be having some fun things to say too. Uh, Dan, I, uh, of course, I come from a, a science background and people in the sciences um very often not always but often they don't spend a lot of time uh reading fiction and uh <laughs> Tolkien Tolkien's <laughs> background was in languages and in um various sorts of ancient literature fictional uh literature and uh really an expert in Yes, he considered himself to be, from a very young age, a philologist. Mm -hmm. And we'll unpack that tonight. A philologist is somebody who loves words. And um, he was uh, very much in tune with words. He loved words. 
and we'll talk about that a little bit and uh, how important that is for his creation of his stories and of Middle Earth. Yeah, but I I came to this really late in life. I mean, some people read Tolkien maybe when they're a teenager or something, and it's uh-huh. it's a kind of uh, fiction that's not um, necessarily real popular with young kids. It's not something really for young children, but it's uh, it's more of a, a deeper kind of fiction with a lot of background and history a fictional history behind it right? and a lot of depth to it. And um, so as someone in the sciences, uh, I was like following the stereotype of not reading much fiction in my life. And <laughs> uh, although there's a few things, but because of C.S. Lewis and his writings right. really kind of sparked an interest for me as well. But um I didn't get started actually reading Tolkien until after the Peter Jackson movies hmm. uh, of the Lord of the Rings. And from people who had read the books and telling me about the books, I got curious about how the books were different from the movies and wanted to kind of get the rest of the story, you might say. Yeah. Uh, and... I I, wrote, I like Peter Jackson's movies a great deal. They're really good, but they are different from the books in ways. And Tolkien did a lot of writing of the kind of background history of the stories. Yes, that yes. he did. He couldn't even get published the way he got the rest of it done. So he first published The Hobbit, and that was popular. It was an enjoyable story and did really well as you know selling that book but then there was the lord of the rings but what tolkien really wanted originally to do was to publish the silmarillion which is kind of the background history yes and then yes. then the hobbit lord of the rings and he wrote a lot of other things that are sort of filling in gaps in between those mm-hmm. and um so there's not too many things like this that have such a a rich uh, background history. Tolkien literally created, I don't know what, it, two or three or four languages mm-hmm. and, and made the story around the languages to some degree for this. And he, made, he wrote kind of a, a several thousand years of history. Yes. That's the, all the background to Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that makes it a uh, very uh, deep and rich kind of thing. And uh, there's a lot of value in um, this kind of story uh, because it's has so many good lessons in it, I think. Yes, it's not your typical fictional fantasy story. It is probably the godfather of all fantasy novels um, in the... Uh, 20th century and and beyond it it might we might say that uh, the lord of the rings could could be classified as the mythology of the 20th century in terms of uh, fiction and literature um certainly he set out to it was his desire uh to write a mythology for england um he loved the norse myths he and c.s lewis both were struck by uh, this thing that their biographers call northernness or this idea of the great north and 
what is beyond this idea of cold skies and what is beyond the seas and what is beyond the hills and the Nordic tales and the Viking epics and the 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 literature of the northern climates and the northern areas. They were both uh, fascinated by uh, this and drawn to God, closer to God, I think, through their longing for this idea of what they called northernness. And I can't do it justice in words, but... They both, and this is what cemented their friendship when they first met, they were both struck by the um, the ancient myths and, and Norse mythology and anything that had to do with the Great North. They just loved that kind of stuff. And his uh, biographer, Humphrey Carter, points out that when Tolkien was younger, he was fascinated by the Welsh language. Where he lived as a child, uh, he would uh, occasionally see the railroad cars going by. And on the railroad cars were these uh, coal trucks, and on the coal trucks they had these fascinating, enigmatic Welsh words that uh, just enraptured Tolkien and and stirred his imagination and ignited his love of words. Like, where do words come from? And that's what a philologist is, and that's what uh, Tolkien considered himself to be when he was studying... um, before the World War I, um, he was on a uh, scholarship um, to study the classics. He wanted to study Greek. He had a scholarship to study the Greek poetry and all of this, and it really never impressed him that much. He just loved words, and so he skated by and eventually was able to barely pass his exams, but he he rather wanted to be a uh, professional uh, philosopher, instructor, professor of languages. That's just what he loved. He loved to study where words came from, the etymology, their history. How did they come to be pronounced as they are? What do they mean? And so everything that he did when he, and the reason it took so long for him to complete Lord of the Rings and C.S. Lewis kind of helped him with it, was that he was so meticulous about word choice and where the story was going that uh, were it not for the friendship of Lewis, we may never have had Lord of the Rings as as the stories of their friendship go. There's an autobiographical, a little autobiographical uh, story that Tolkien wrote um, that we can talk about a little bit later that gives us some background. Uh, at least it's considered to be semi-autobiographical. It's a little story called Leaf by Niggle, and it's in a book, uh, Tales from the Perilous Realm. I think it might be in some other collective essays of his. But it's the story of an older man who loves to paint leaves and he's trying to create a tree, but he's so stuck on the minutia of making each leaf different and unique and beautiful that he can never seem to finish the painting and the tree just grows and grows and grows. And finally, he just has to use a, a stair, a ladder to get to the top of the canvas because he's, uh, he's, he's painted all these leaves. He's better at painting leaves than he is the tree, but um, it's kind of autobiographical in a way because it's a, a little bit of a background about what it was like for him to work on Lord of the Rings. Imagine the the completed series as a tree, but all the words were leaves. But every word that he would use, a lot of words would just evoke scenery or set an ambiance or mean something much deeper. And so he was carefully and meticulously always considering word choice as he was creating Lord of the Rings. So Leaf by Niggle may be referencing that occasionally as we talk about him tonight. But uh, not only is it a little story about his uh, big project, but uh, a little bit about his personal life to some degree as well. A fascinating little essay 
a little story that y- you would uh, enjoy reading called Leaf by Niggle, and we'll refer to that as we uh, talk about uh, what we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah, and he's he wrote a number of little short stories, and, and he did some interesting poems. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the uh, the stories related to Lord of the Rings and uh, often called his legendarium because of the so many so much writing and so many stories he did right involving that yes yes the important thing to know about Tolkien I think we should tell everybody if many of our listeners may already know this but he wrote another essay called on fairy stories and in that essay are a couple of insights into his writings one of them was this idea that he carried for most of his literary and philological life, uh, the idea of being a sub-creator. And he mentions this in On Fairy Stories. And the idea of a sub-creator for Tolkien was basically that, you know, if we're created in the image of God, if we bear the imagio Dei, one of the aspects of us being created in God's image is that we do things as God does. So we are, as human beings, we are creators. Whether you're creating a dinner for your family, whether you're creating a schedule for your supervisor or your boss or your secretary or you're a chef or uh, you are a street maintenance person or you're a construction worker or you're an artist. Uh, You don't have to be a musician or an artist or a writer to create we create things all the time as human beings. And um, and this was very critical and important to understand as Tolkien uh, believed in this wholeheartedly, that, that we bear God's image um, and when we create. And so Tolkien was, in a sense, modeling what God has done in the sense of creating a world. And how did God create, Wayne? What did he do? He used so far as we know from what Moses recorded in Genesis, God spoke creation into existence. And then what does John say of, of God? He says that uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the Word, mm-hmm. and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word created everything. This Word was Jesus, of course. And I think a lot in a lot of ways, Tolkien's technical approach to writing, the, the multifaceted approach, the methodologies that he used was was grounded in this idea that um, he was creating a universe with words. I mean, we can say that the Middle Earth, Lord of the Rings, is a kind of universe that Tolkien used primarily. I mean, he was a good, his mom turned him on to art when he was younger, but he, his strength is not necessarily in in artwork. There's a lot of Tolkien original artwork that's fascinating because Tolkien did it, but he was more of a he created his landscape not through visual arts, but through literary arts. And so he created a universe using words. And so in this regard, I think we can, uh, we can, we can see a little bit of the Imagio Dei and, and kind of maybe tease out a little bit about how God creates the world, you know, through how we see Tolkien creating his universe. Yeah, so in, in Genesis, it, it starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in... The Silmarillion, uh, it's the uh, Eru, Eru Iluvatar that is the all-powerful creator. But uh, and he starts with sa- saying something like, let it be or let, be, let things be or something to that effect. 
and it's like saying, let there be existence. I mean, it's, it's very similar to Genesis where it starts out with God creating the heavens and the earth. Um, but it doesn't mean every, uh, all objects are there. He just, it's more like the idea of creating the universe itself, but not the things in it. And that, and then he creates the Valar and the, but the Val, well, the Valar already are there. There are 14 of them. And, he gives the actual creation of things in the universe to them. So he sort of delegates the job. This makes it really different from the the biblical concept of creation because in in the Bible, the Bible actually emphasizes um, that God created by himself. He did it himself. He created everything himself. That's really emphasized in Scripture. Um, Isaiah 44, it says, Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all your trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. This is what the Lord says, who your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I, I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Mm-hmm. So, this is very different from Tolkien's uh, fictional universe, if you will. And that's, you know, Tolkien wasn't trying to um, follow the Bible and everything. So I'm not saying that there's anything, there's anything wrong with that. It's just uh, Christians are kind of used to thinking of Tolkien as um, that, that his, his beliefs affected what he was writing, and it did. But not everything follows a biblical concept. So, if Christians have read part of part of it and not a lot of Tolkien, they might get the wrong idea. Or if uh, if you're just not as familiar with all the background, you kind of look at this in bits and pieces. This is one of the reasons I I wanted to dig into. Tolkien more so I would understand better. Yeah, he's not he always shied away from and always would make it explicitly clear that he was not doing an allegory. So um he was not sitting down with the Bible on his left hand, although he certainly used the Bible as inspiration for languages and creativity and things of this nature. He wasn't going, Oh look, Similarillion, just like Genesis or um, you know, the or you're not going to pick out Gandalf or Frodo or Hobbit uh, hobbits or any kind of um, um, character in the novel and find a an exact biblical parallel. He wasn't doing that. I wanted to read something that was in uh, was written by uh, uh, one of his biographers, John Garth, who wrote the book Tolkien and the Great War, which I highly recommend. It's a great book on the life of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and how. World War I impacted him, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, this is what Tolkien had to say uh, during his lifetime about the critics who tried to find uh, secret messages or secret analogous 
things in the Lord of the Rings or by <laughs> trying to mm-hmm. psycholo- trying to psychologically evaluate Tolkien. This is a fascinating insight and uh, something that's very important because you and I, Wayne, we're not sitting here trying to uh, find secrets in Lord of the Rings and this means that and that means this. <laughs> right. We're not, we're no. not doing that. But uh, this is what Tolkien said himself. He says, uh, I object to the contemporary trend in criticism with its excessive interest in the details of the lives of authors and artists. They only distract attention from an author's works and end, as one now often sees, in becoming the main interest. But only one's guardian angel, or indeed God himself, could unravel the real relationship between personal facts and an author's works. Not the author himself, though he knows more than any investigator, and certainly not so-called psychologists, and uh, that, that is Tolkien's idea that, that though I'm the closest one to the work that I've done, I can tell you that you can't psychoanalyze me. And maybe even I don't know half of the reasons why I use this or that in my stories. And uh, <laughs> so, so it's, it's a bad business to go into Lord of the Rings and try to find secret things uh, that, uh, oh, look at this and look at that. But that's not to say, though, on the other hand... That's not to say that we can't look at Lord of the Rings and Tolkien's life and see what influenced him in uh, creating uh, Middle-earth, the hobbits, and all of that. There are plenty of tributaries of influence that uh, feed into Lord of the Rings. But, um, but as you say, Wayne, he's not doing a, a biblical... Um, uh, he's not doing a biblical allegory. Thank you. He's not doing a biblical allegory. And um, I, I wanted to mention this, too, because this is important, I think, as well. Uh, as I'm reading up on this for our, our podcast, one thing that struck me in a couple of the biographies I was reading is that Tolkien, the, the Lord of the Rings, Silmarillion, his whole corpus of work, really is a kind of moral cosmology. So a lot of people have accused Tolkien of, or not accused, but have suggested that Lord of the Rings is Tolkien's experience in World War One, his personal experience of being in the trenches in Somme in uh, S O M M E in um, eighteen or uh, nineteen sixteen, uh, or his um, being alive at the time in, as a contemporary in World War Two. So in both wars, of course, the Germans are the bad guys. So people have some people have said that um, well the orcs and all the evil and Mordor and Sauron are all Hitler like Germans they're all terrible evil people and uh, you know the hobbits and everybody that's the English speaking people these are the allies and Tolkien's not doing that there's no nationalism in Lord of the Rings what he's doing is he's saying that the, that the evil in Tolkien's stories is a is a is a kind of a portrait of evil in general. It's a real objective evil that's personified in his stories. He's not saying the bad guys are Nazis and the hobbits are English people. He's not saying that. It's not it's not a nationalistic ideal. He's he's very much in tune with the idea that that evil is a problem for everybody. Mm-hmm. Germans and English people. And it's almost kind of like in a sense that Tolkien's work could you could classify it in some sense as what Ephesians says about the spiritual warfare that we have. We do not fight against flesh and blood, Wayne. It's principalities and powers. And so what you have portrayed in Tolkien's stories, the evil that is portrayed from the very beginning, are principalities and powers that are arrayed against human beings 
in general. So it's not the Allies versus the Axis powers or anything of that nature. Tolkien had Germanic stock in his family. Tolkien had Anglo-Saxon stock in his family. He was not anti-German, and he didn't just write them, write off all the German people because of of um, World War One or because of Hitler and World War Two. For the same reason, he recognizes evil in his own people, you know. And so look at the character of Gollum for a, for a minute, for just a second. Remember, Wayne, what Gandalf says to the hobbits about, about Gollum's involvement? You know, he's an evil creature, and we think, why do they, why do they bother keeping him alive and, and this sort of thing? He's spying on them. He's, he's, he's crass and evil and ugly, right? He's, he's hideous Yeah, and Sam and Frodo were kind of debating whether he deserved to live or not. Right, right. And and so Gandalf gives them a bit of wisdom about you never know. It's not that, that Gollum has entirely lost his hobbitness or his goodness. There is still some tinctures of good, and it is not up to us necessarily to decide his fate. He may yet still play a greater role as the drama that they're all involved in unfolds and so there's a bit of mercy there given to Gollum because he's it, it's and it's I think it's a good view of Tolkien in general that doesn't it doesn't matter how evil you think another creature might be there's still something good in them because primarily they are created in the image of God in the sense that, that though that's not being said directly in the the Lord of the Rings fantasy uh, there's no real overarching God creature a God uh uh, character in Lord of the Rings, but the idea that there is something else beyond men and elves and dwarves is all throughout the story without being said. It's kind of like a book of Esther, right? Where God's not even mentioned, but he's everywhere. It's, yes, that's and, a good a good point, I think. Yeah, I, I and I think that's the way he crafted the story. So it's a moral landscape, Wayne. It's kind of like a a larger book of Esther. It's a moral landscape of cosmic good and cosmic evil that that could fit into any generation. It could be the 20th century. You could go back a thousand years and find the same problem. You know, Beowulf fighting monsters. You know, Tolkien saw that. He translated Beowulf into English. Um, Fighting Grendel and the monsters, you know, or in our modern age, fighting the, the evils that are arrayed against human beings. The the landscape or the topography is a sort of a cosmological good versus evil, not Nazis versus English people or Nazis. Yeah, versus- and there's there's a really good uh, principle in in Tolkien and the way he approaches this conflict between good and evil. So there was a video I watched that explained this very nicely. It's it it's sort of the distinction between a moral victory. And a uh, what you might call a physical victory, and in in Tolkien's stories, Dan, there's all these different armies who fight against the evil armies of Melkor or Sauron, and it's uh, often a losing battle fighting against these evil armies, even though you have great heroes who are fighting on the the good side, right? And but the thing that matters in Tolkien's stories, what's really honored and becomes important in the stories, is not so much who's winning a battle, but whether whether individuals have a moral victory in how they live. 
So, in other words, uh, you, you had the debate about whether uh, in Frodo and Sam, whether they would leave, let uh, Gollum live. Um, there was a, a kind of victory in them letting Gollum live in spite of the the frustrating, aggravating <laughs> per, <laughs> person he was to deal with. Right. He was, they needed him as their guide, and he turned out to be essential to defeating evil, even yes. in spite of himself. Right. At the end. And right. um in spite of the fact that you might lose from the outward appearance of things, there is a a a broader purpose to things that's not that you and I are not in control of. Right. And so it in in the whole Lord of the Rings and destruction of the Ring of Power, you I think there's hints there of Iluvatar actually kind of nudging things in the the right direction and working things out. Uh, it's, it's kind of like a the idea of providence. Yes, that's exactly. in the in the in the story, but not stated or made explicit. There's kind of a lament about how about Tolkien himself and Leaf by Niggle. And uh, I want to read from the first page. And the reason I'm saying this is because what we're talking about here, this moral landscape, the culture and the people, the battles that you say, the physical battles, the fighting between people and people groups and whatever, is a macrocosm of what's going on inside each individual, as you alluded to. So it's not just let's kill all the orcs and have victory over Sauron, but are we at the same time having moral victories in our own lives? So the culture, the larger battlefield, if you will, is a macrocosm of a battlefield that's going on in the hearts of each individual. I mean, you see this in Bilbo's struggle with the ring and Frodo struggling with the ring in Bormer wanting the ring, um, in Gandalf, you know, in, in some sense, sometimes you think Gandalf wants the ring, um, but he has wisely learned how to avoid its temptation, but sometimes Frodo gives into the use of the ring, and of course you see Gollum is just obsessed. He has fully given over almost to, to the... And you can see how his selfish desires have nearly destroyed him, not entirely, not completely, but um, um, there's there's many different individual characters throughout Lord of the Rings that are having this microcosmic battle with themselves uh, on a moral scale. And so from in Leaf by Niggle, this is interesting because um, <laughs> it's written from, it's, it's of course, Tol- Tolkien's writing this and the, the character is, you know, the older man, Niggle, who is obsessed with his tree and his leaves. And uh, in the first page, he says, for one thing, he, Niggle, was sometimes just idle and did nothing at all. For another, he was kind-hearted, in a way. You know, the sort of kind heart. It made him uncomfortable more often than it made him do anything. And even when he did anything, it did not him prevent him from grumbling, losing his temper, and swearing, mostly to himself. And so, isn't that a wonderful confession, though? Isn't that all of us, right? Our best deeds 
are infected by our selfishness, our laziness. Um, we're idle a lot more than we ought to be. We know our inherent sins and weaknesses. We are battling uh, a miniature battle of good and evil inside of us because we are both created in the image of God to do wonderful good, but we are also tainted um, and infected by sin. And um, he, I think, was very conscious of this. And, and that's why he could look at and not disdain Germans just because of the war, but because he recognized that evil plagues all of us, right? Romans 3, um, no one does good. We all fall short of the glory of God. And as I said earlier, Ephesians 6, that um, you know we don't battle with each other. We don't battle with flesh and blood. We battle with principalities and powers. Yeah, and uh, Dan, there's, there's a lot, I think, that can be said about different kinds of heroes mm-hmm. in Tolkien's stories. Because he has a lot of different heroes. And, you know, this personal spiritual struggle that you're talking about, for example, Boromir... He he gets caught up in this desire to get the ring from Frodo, right? And but then, before he dies, he realizes that's wrong, right? And then that he failed, so he has a kind of spiritual victory even as he's dying. And on the other hand, you have kind of an opposite example in Saruman, because here he is, the head of the. Uh, the five wizards that came to Middle Earth, and he was powerful and very knowledgeable, but he got swayed by the search for the ring, and he was corrupted by it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you see the spiritual struggles in in people. It's brought out really in beautiful ways in the in uh, Tolkien stories, and you have all kinds of different warrior heroes and uh and then Aragorn becomes king in the end of Lord of the Rings of course um there's various great warriors you could talk about but the greatest heroes in Tolkien's stories I think if if you were to ask Tolkien himself which which hero in your stories is the best hero I think he would say it's the hobbits. Yeah, because they are they're reluctant. And I, I see in the in the character of Niggle, I see a little bit of hobbitness. Um, you know, this calmly little man who just wants to focus on his art, uh, who's troubled by the needs of his neighbor. He knows he ought to go help him, but he doesn't want to, and when he goes to help his neighbor, he's grumbling about it and he's not too happy about it. He's not a willingly cheerful, help helpful neighbor. And, um, you know, in, in the story, um, it's, it's debatable, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that Niggle dies and goes to a, a kind of uh, purgatory. Of course, it, 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 Tolkien was Catholic, but the, it's interesting because he's, there's a scene in the Leaf by Niggle where he's in another room overhearing um, two individuals talking about Niggle's life, looking through the records. Uh, it's fascinating insight. And uh, it's one of them, one of the voices he hears says this, uh, his heart was in the right place. And the other says, yes, but it did not function properly. And his head was not screwed on tight enough. 
He hardly <laughs> he hardly ever thought at all. Look at the time he wasted, not even amusing himself. He never got ready for his journey, and I think that means death. He was moderately well off, and yet he arrived here almost destitute. He had to put in be, had to put had to be put in the pauper's wing. A bad case, I am afraid. I think he should stay some time yet. And so the idea is that he's been sent to purgatory, and now he's got to work off, you know, his uh, his laziness and his sin. And of course, uh, that purgatory, of course, is a Catholic doctrine. But but the idea here is still, I think we can follow it, whether we're Protestant or Catholic, that 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 we all are going to die with this kind of mess between good and evil. I'm I have all this wonderful potential to do good. I try to do good, and even when I do good, I make people mad, and I alienate myself. And then when I'm doing good, um, you know, like sometimes I take firewood uh, to neighbors um, during the wintertime. But sometimes I grumble when I do that because I'm interrupted because I'm working on something I want to work on, or I'm just lazy and I don't want to go out and (laughs) fill up a truck full of firewood. And so in the midst of even doing good work, I grumble, right? And, And this is us. This is what we do. And, uh, and I think that that is, that, that is a great, you know, portrait. And that's why I think it, it appeals to people because I, who can't relate to the hobbits, who can't relate to the characters and their struggles. Um, and, and there's this, there's this wonderful sense that Frodo and, 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 uh, Bilbo and Sam Gamgee and everybody that's caught up in this is, as you said earlier, when we started talking, Wayne, that, that, that the Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit, this is something that happens to them. It's almost like they were chosen for this, like Esther was chosen to be uh, queen. And, um, you know, and, and what does Mordecai say to, to Esther? Who knows that you have been chosen for such a time as this? And it's all throughout Lord of the Rings, this idea, as you say, that, 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 um, that there is some aspect of divine providence going on that we're not told directly throughout the entire story yeah Um, and uh the hobbits uh i think one of the key things about them is that they just seem to lack this selfish ambition that many other uh, men were tended to get caught up in yes Uh, but they also have their they also have their uh creaturely faults because if there's anything that we might we might uh uh, we might um, look at, look down on the hobbits for <laughs> is uh, and and I say this because in the hobbits I see myself. You know, I just want my comfortable little hole in the ground. I just want my food <laughs> and my cabinet stocked, and yeah. I just want to have my comforts. Right. So maybe they're not into machines and men, but boy, do they like a good lunch and uh, a second breakfast and a pipe and That's tea, right. and tea. You know, and they don't they they don't want to be bothered with worldly affairs. So, in some sense, yeah, you know, there's there's some wonderful dialogue between Gandalf trying to motivate the hobbits. Uh, really yeah, and fun. and Gandalf gets uh, Bilbo in, involved in getting out of uh, the Shire for once. Uh, right, right. He's got reluctant to. Right, right. But uh, speaking of simple people that do a, a phenomenal job. In uh, the heroes in, in Tolkien's stories on this theme of what we're talking about, um, I, I, I ran across this and I got it out of Holly's book, and I never knew this until I till it was just actually today I had an aha moment about this. So this isn't Lord of the Rings, but it is in The Hobbit, and it is uh, you remember the scene where Smaug is uh, comes out of the cave and attacks um, the town, right? What's the name of the town? That's called Lake Town. 
Lake Town. There's that scene, and what's that guy's name? Bard, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and he's, um, Smaug is flying all over the town, and he's throwing down fire and burning stuff up. And um, nobody has ever combated Smaug and come away successful. He's just breathing fire and everything and, and scaring people half to death, and he's just having, having a time. And um, Bard uh, is fighting. He's going to. He goes up to the tower, and he's got um, his one last arrow, his iron arrow that never fails him. And uh, you know the town's on fire, and smog's flying everywhere. And, uh, you know, the, the hobbits say the men were jumping into the water on every side. People were getting in boats. Weapons were flung down. There was mourning and weeping. And uh, the dragon was just delighted with all this destruction. He had a sport hunting them. All this is going on, right? But there were still a company of archers that held their ground among the burning houses. Their captain was Bard, grim-voiced, grim-faced, whose friends had accused him of prophesying floods and poisoned fish, though they knew his worth and courage. He was descendant of, in a long line of Girion, uh, Girion, I think I'm pronouncing that right, Girion, Lord of Dale, whose wife and child had escaped down the running river from the ruin long ago. Now he shot with a great yew bow, till his arrows but one were spent. The flames were near him, his companions were leaving him, he bent his bow for the last time. 